All right, so this morning we are going to begin our study of the book of James. And uh, if you are uh, in a small group Bible study and you would like, you're looking for uh, something to study along, uh, we have a curriculum written for the book of James, or if you just want to study along on your own, great curriculum written. Also, we have it in Spanish. So uh, if Spanish is your first language, you want to follow along in Spanish, or if you want to learn Spanish, you can get a copy of both, one in English, one in Spanish, side by side. There you go. So we have some resources for you. Now, uh, as we begin, what I'd like for you to do is uh, close your Bibles, take out a blank piece of paper and a pen, and we're going to have a quiz. Just kidding. Wouldn't that be a terrible way to start church? Oh my gosh, beginning of the semester, and in church we're, we're, taking, we're taking a quiz, we're taking an exam, you'd be like, oh man, I gotta find a new church. Um, but that's how life feels sometimes, doesn't it? Man, out of the blue, out of nowhere, you're, you're not prepared, and then you find yourself, you're just in the middle of a test. Uh, I remember for probably nine months after I graduated, I had this recurring Nightmare, And in my nightmare, it was uh, December, and I woke up uh, right before finals were about to start, and I remembered that I had signed up for a class, and I had forgotten about the class and never attended the class. I'd never studied for the class, and yet I still had to take the final, right? And I'd wake up in this cold sweat. I'm like, oh, my gosh, did I really sign up for class? Okay, no, I'm okay, right? But that's how life strikes us, and, and no one likes tests, and no one goes looking for tests, and if you do, you're sick, and there's something wrong with you. It, that's just, that's not what we, what we long for. We long f- to get through them and get, get out of them and to avoid them, but they are inevitable in our lives. And so where James starts his book is with preparing us for the inevitable exams that we will face in this life. So, are you ready to begin? All right. Let's jump in. James chapter 1. If you are not there already, open your Bibles to James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a bondservant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed or scattered abroad, greetings. Uh, James is the author. James was a really common name in the Uh, First century, in fact, the name James shows up several times in the New Testament, but there's only one James in the New Testament that fits as the author of this book. It's James, the the half-brother and younger half-brother of Jesus, who, remember, initially did not believe that his brother was the Messiah, but later, after the resurrection, we're told that Jesus appeared to James, and James believed, and so James is, is present with the church on the day of Pentecost, and he becomes one of the leaders of the the Jerusalem church. And he writes a letter, and it's a letter apparently that he designed to be kind of like an encyclical letter to be passed around because he writes it to followers of Jesus who have been scattered from Jerusalem, probably those who were scattered after the the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And he hits on some really common themes that he knows that even in their scattering that they're going to be wrestling with. Uh, They're very proverbial themes. You're going to see throughout the book of James the influence of Proverbs and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's very earthly. It's very applicable. He's going to talk about wisdom and speech, and he's going to talk about uh, jealousy and relationships and money, and he's going to talk ultimately at the center of his message about faith. 
and not uh, that initial response to the gospel through which we exercise faith, we believe, and we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He's not talking about that initial response of faith. He's talking about the ongoing growth and development and expression of faith in the believer's life. And in particular, he wants our faith to be expressed in the way that we speak, in the way we speak to one another, in our good works, in our generosity, in our relationships. And fundamentally, he wants us to grow a faith that is, it's deep and it's strong and it's mature so that no matter what trials and tribulations we face in life, we will walk through it joyfully with God. And so James is gonna give us four words of uh, exhortation and observation about a mature, deep, growing faith. James chapter one, verse two, he writes, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, "'when you encounter various trials.'" knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James' first observation is this. Mature faith is formed through trials. And one of the things you may notice about the book of James is that James comes out swinging. James doesn't start like most letters with, hey, here's a word of commendation. You guys are doing really great over here, and this is what I'm praying for. You know, instead he starts out with a command, and he starts out with an imperative, and he starts out with a reminder, and it's really bad news. God's will for your life is not comfort. That God's will for your life is not ease. God's will for your life is not that all things go smoothly. If that were God's will for your life, then God is failing, or he will fail many times. That's not his will. That's not what he's trying to accomplish in your life. Instead, what God is trying to accomplish in your life is a deep and abiding maturity in your life. That is God's goal for your life. Now, I have a confession to make. I, uh, I enjoy sometimes uh, other people's misery. Like I, I really enjoy watching, I like watching fail videos and, um, you know, at night I'll pull up my iPad and I'm laying in bed and Tristy knows what I'm doing because I'm just sitting there just laughing. I'm just laughing out loud. And, and I know it's really sick and perverse, but it's just so funny to me. Like I'm, I'm laughing when people are they're falling off their skateboards and they're slipping on the ice and they're driving their car through the garage door. I mean, I just, those things just make me laugh. And uh, one of my favorites is when people are they're, uh, up in the attic and they fall through the, the ceiling. It's just... Makes me laugh, you know, somebody's sitting down below and they've got their phone out and they're all of a sudden they come through. And the reason I think I I can relate to that is I've walked in uh, ceilings, on on top of ceilings on many occasions. I've been up in attics and it's it's a tricky proposition. You know, you're stepping from rafter to rafter and you can easily just step off and go through the sheetrock or you can be tempted to look at that sheetrock below and it'd be much easier to walk on the sheetrock, right? It's, it's broader, it's flat, it looks strong and secure, but if you step on it, you go through. And what James is saying is this, I want your faith to be like the rafters, not like the sheetrock. I want your faith to be rock solid, not paper thin. And for some of us, our, our, our faith is it's really paper thin. The trial comes along and we fold up shop. We, we, we walk away from God and we wonder, is he good? Does he hate us? We don't have any theology of suffering. I would argue one of the great deficiencies in the American church is we don't have a really strong theology of suffering. 
For so many of us, we have no theology of suffering, or we have this theology of suffering that it means that maybe our faith isn't, isn't great enough because God's will for our life is that we be in, in wealth and health and prosperity at all times. And so if suffering comes, maybe we don't have enough faith, or maybe you don't have any faith and we're not a believer after all. And James says, no, suffering and trials are inevitable in the believer's life. In fact, as a part of your curriculum, they are core. They are not elective. That's the normal Christian life. In fact, uh, Peter would say, in 1 Peter, he writes a lot about suffering. He would say, uh, my brethren, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. He goes, wake up. Why are you surprised? You live in a world with thorns and thistles, and it's not God's will to rescue you out of every trial. Instead, as David wrote, uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, why aren't you rescuing me? No, he says, you walk with me. You provide for me, and your rod and your staff comfort me, but you don't always pull me out. Why? Because you're trying to accomplish something in my life that cannot be accomplished apart from trials and tribulations. Read with me again, verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, you encounter various or multifaceted trials. Your trials will come in all shapes and sizes and at all times. There will be relationship trials and health trials and money trials and persecution trials. In other words, your trials are gonna come in all shapes and sizes. They're gonna come from all different kinds of sources. They're gonna be trials that come sometimes because we bring them on ourselves. We, sometimes we sin and we find ourselves in terrible circumstances or sometimes someone else sins against us or sometimes we're just trying to walk faithfully with Jesus and we experience persecution or sometimes it's just a trial because we live in a broken, fallen world, right? A hurricane comes through and the Christian's house gets flooded and the non-Christian's house gets flooded because it's wet. That's it. You live in a broken world, and often you don't know, why has this trial come upon me? You can't discern. And I'm going to tell you, most of the time it doesn't matter. Because you can't control it anyway. All that you can control is your response to the trial. And so James starts with a command. It's an imperative, meaning... There is something that you can do and you should do. There is a response that you can make. Verse two, consider it all joy. It's a command, it's, a, it's an imperative. Consider it all joy. Now, James is not saying feel happy. <laughs> that is not what he's saying. In fact, it's, it's actually an accounting term to, to reckon. He's saying put the trial or tribulation into the joy column. Think of it as a joy. Consider it as a joy. Consider it, in fact, he says, all joy. And what he means by that is not that you're going to feel only joy and no other emotion, exclusive joy. He's saying, consider it as an intense joy. In fact, you might feel joy and also sorrow at the exact same time. In fact, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, when he's going through suffering, say, we are as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Paul says, we're feeling both of these emotions at the same time, but we're feeling all joy or intense joy in the middle of that trial. Why? Because we're looking through it to see what God can accomplish through this in our lives. So it's a choice to embrace God's perspective and his attitude toward what he can accomplish. Now, I want you to turn back just one page to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 
And listen to Christ's example. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, was Jesus happy about the cross? He was not happy about the cross. In fact, he asked his father, could you get your will done any other way? That's really what I want, but not my will but yours be done. Right? Because happiness is by definition linked inextricably to our circumstances. It's from the same root word as happenings or perhaps when our circumstances are pleasant, we are happy. When our circumstances are unpleasant, we are unhappy. Paul is not saying be happy. Jesus wasn't happy about the cross, but what the writer of the Hebrews tells us is who for the joy set before him. He looked through the cross to what God could accomplish through the cross, which was the forgiveness of sins for all people, for all times, and the good pleasure of his father because he obeyed him, knowing he would sit down at the right hand of the father. As Paul will say, Romans, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And we embrace God's perspective on the eternal in the midst of circumstances that don't make us happy, but they can bring us joy. Because God can accomplish something beautiful through them. Turn back to James chapter 1 again. James says, consider it, count it to your joy column, all joy. Let it be intense joy for you whenever you encounter or literally fall into all kinds of trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is a really uh, colorful word. It means literally in Greek to remain under. To endure means to remain under. It means to carry the load and not set down the load, to remain under the load and take another step under the load, to endure. And how do you learn endurance? By reading a book about endurance. No, you don't learn it that way. You learn it by enduring. That's the only way you can learn endurance. Now, uh, I work out at a CrossFit gym. And when I say that, I don't want you to think, less of me or more of me than you should when I say that, right? I don't want you to think less of me because some of you are going, oh my gosh, man, he's one of these CrossFit people. That's all he's going to want to talk about is CrossFit all the time. You know, oh, it's amazing. You, know, you should join me. I love to talk about other things than CrossFit, like Jesus. I'm, I have other interests, right? So don't think less of me. Don't think more of me. Go, oh my gosh, man, he's a CrossFit athlete because that's not true either. I mean, look at me. I'm not, I'm not right? I'm, I've, I've been trying to bulk up for 50-something years. I just know I... So when I go in, I look at the workout of the day and I scale it down to something that I can do. But what I love about working out at my CrossFit gym is that I have learned a new level of endurance. I have learned that I can go harder, longer than I ever imagined. And I love it because I'm working out with other people. There's a cloud of witnesses around and we're cheering each other on 
to not quit. Don't set it down. Stay under. Right? But the goal of endurance is not endurance, but what endurance accomplishes. Or if I can extend my metaphor, the goal of working out is not bigger muscles. Sorry for some of you guys. That's not actually the goal. To look better in the mirror is not the goal. It's what, the, what you can actually accomplish with the strength and the endurance. That's the goal. So notice what he says. Uh, Consider it all joy. Put it into your joy column. It's intense joy, my brethren, when you encounter all kinds of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Verse 4, and allow endurance to have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance is not the goal. Maturity is the goal. James uses the word uh, teleos, which means perfection or maturity or completion. That you would become all that God designed you and made you to be, and you can't become that apart from suffering. Now, I told you that James uh, will make allusions to Jesus' teaching, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. He hasn't quoted a lot, but you're going you're to hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to hear echoes of the book of Proverbs. In particular, uh, James borrows a word from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 is this. Jesus, Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Same word, teleos, you are to be complete. And James goes on and says, that is lacking in nothing. There's nothing that you lack to face any and every trial that God allows into your life to walk faithfully with him, with joy in him, not turning your back on him, but instead proclaiming he's good. That you would be complete. The Apostle Paul picks this up, and it's really a central verse that defines uh, the, the goal of his ministry. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, we proclaim him, that is Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man teleos, complete, mature in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. God's goal for your life is not comfort, it's not ease. God's goal for your life is maturity so that no matter what challenge or tribulation or trial you face, you will walk through it faithfully with him. It's maturity. Now, let me illustrate. Um, I taught both of my kids uh, how to drive. I didn't send them to a driving school because uh, I'm cheap and also, of course, I'm an excellent driver. And so I thought, I'll take it on myself. I will teach my kids how to drive. And, you know, that's an experience if you're a parent and you know what I'm talking about, it's, it's an experience because your kid gets behind the wheel the first time and they've never been behind the wheel. They've never been around traffic. They haven't been, you know, driving through parking lots. They haven't been on Texas Avenue uh, in, you know, August when all the students are coming back, right? They, they, have, they haven't experienced this thing. So you're sitting there uh, in the passenger seat and, you know, I, I react instinctively, right? I've been driving for 40-something years. I just, something happens and, and I, you know, I step on the brake that's not there. And, you know, I punch on the gas, it's time to go, or I'm, I want to reach for this steering wheel, and I can't do that, so I just scream, I, you know? And then, and then I realize, ah, I need to instruct, and there's a delay, and then I call out, this is how you should react in this situation. And then in time, as my kids practiced, they saw more situations and more scenarios, and they learned 
how to respond and how to react, and it eventually became instinctive. And that's what happens to us in life is we walk with God through, through trials and tribulations and sufferings, and they come in terms of relationships or health or money. They come in all these forms, and we see God being faithful to us over and over and over again. And when the next one hits, we just lean in because we know he will walk with us. Because he's, he's developed inside of us a, a rock-solid faith, not a paper-thin faith. We don't fold up shop. There's nowhere else to go but walk with Jesus through the trial. And that's God's goal or intention for our lives. Now, I'd like you to hold your place here in James and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 7, let's listen together to, to Paul's experience with suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. He says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak then I am strong. Did Paul uh, go and seek out trial and tribulation? He did not. Plenty came his way without seeking for it. Did he, did he enjoy it? <laughs> did he say, oh, this really makes me happy? He did not. Did he want to get rid of it? Absolutely. And he asked God that it be, be removed. And when God said no, he embraced it and said, all right then, I'll take what you can give me through this trial. That is, I will learn the maturity, the, the perfection, again, he uses the same term, and I will learn to allow your power to be manifested in my life, not just my own. So that when people look at me as I'm struggling and I'm suffering, they will say, there's a man who walks with God. There's a woman who walks with God. And that's what God wants to produce in our lives. So first, mature faith is formed through trial. Second, mature faith is guided through God's wisdom. Turn back to James chapter 1 and verse 5. James writes, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, Wisdom is going to be, as you'll see throughout the book of James, a key theme for him. Uh, Wisdom, he's really drawing on his Old Testament background, uh, means skillful living. Wisdom is skillful living. Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is not education. Wisdom is skillful living. Wisdom is walking God's way. It's walking God's pathway. Listen to this description from Isaiah 30. It says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you begin to turn to the right or to the left. Are you lacking wisdom? Do you want to know how to go through this trial? Ask God. 
Does any of you lack wisdom and you're in the middle of a trial? And James is actually assuming they will lack wisdom because God is the only source of wisdom. And in the midst of the trial, they're going to have to call out and say, God, I need to know how to walk through this trial. James says, he will give it to you. How? Well, it may be as you're, as you're reading the word, all of a sudden you understand the word in a new and a fresh way and the, the truth leaps off the page and you go, this is the way to walk through the trial. Or maybe uh, it's the guidance of counselors, friends help you walk through the trial. Or maybe it's circumstances, doors opening and closing and God's showing you and guiding you. Right? It can come in a variety of ways. It may be the voice of God's spirit beginning to just quietly whisper to you, this is the way, walk in it. But God will give you his wisdom to walk through the trial. So uh, James is not saying God's gonna answer every little detail about how to live your life, right? That's not what he's saying, right? So, man, God, should I ask her out or not? <laughs> the answer is yes, you should, you should. And if she says no, then you just get up, dust yourself off, everybody gets rejected and move on, right? Just be a man. Right? But that's totally, that's a completely irrelevant tangent. We're not going to take that. My point is this. My point is this. He will show you how to walk through the trial. All you have to do is ask. Now, hold your place here in James again and turn back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds, and him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, Give what is good to those who ask him. Jesus is saying, this is what your father is like, right? He doesn't hand out snakes and stones. That's, that's just not who he is. In fact, James will say, you know, ask because he loves to give and he gives, he gives generously. He gives without reproach. He doesn't go, oh my gosh, are you asking me again? Haven't you figured this out? Ah, you're such an idiot. That's not how God functions. It's not how he operates. Instead, he wants you to ask and to keep asking, right? As a parent, I don't. I, I want my kids to stop asking me, right? And when they keep asking me, it bugs me, but that's not how God is. He's a better parent. He wants you to keep asking. In fact, I came across this quote this week that I loved. It says, God never tires of doing his people good. The more frequently we come to God, the more welcome we are. Because that's what he is like. Turn back to James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you don't know how to move through this trial. Do you lack wisdom? If anyone know, needs to know how to live skillfully in this moment, let him ask. And as James is alluding to in the Sermon on the Mount, let him ask and keep on asking. Let him seek and keep on seeking. Let him knock and keep on knocking. It's all in the present tense. Just keep coming back. Why? Because God wants you with him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Here's a caveat, though. But he has to ask in faith. That is, you have to believe that God is who he says he is. He's a God who gives generously. Right? You need to ask uh, in faith. And then he goes on, without any doubting. Now, that's not really a great translation 
Because when we think of doubt, we think of that, the internal struggle that we're having, right, sometimes, like the man who wanted his child healed, and he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, right? He's just, he's just really struggling with his confidence in that moment, right? That's not, that's not what James is talking about. Uh, and so it's really not a good translation. The word literally means to judge between. What he's talking about is this internal dialogue of judging God's word, standing in judgment of God's word, saying to yourself, I'm going to find out what God wants to say about this, and then I'll decide if I have a better way. Okay, that's what he's saying. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to suspend judgments. I'll listen to God's way, but then I'm going to actually maybe choose my own way if I think that I know better. So, Quickly back to our dating analogy, I would have guys come all the time and they're asking, you know, dating advice, this kind of thing. And, and what I, you know, and they come in and go, hey, you know, my roommates and I talked and all seven of us, we all agree that, you know, this is what I should do. I just want to know what you think. And I go, well, you don't need my opinion. You got all, all seven of you guys agree. You don't really, you don't actually really want to know what I think. You want me to confirm what you've already decided. And I hear Dan Dillard on the front row laughing because he's had that conversation too a thousand times. You don't want my input because I might not agree with your seven roommates. It's just possible that I don't think that they are the receptacle of all wisdom on earth on dating. And do any of them have girlfriends? No, they don't, right? I mean, there's... (laughs) You want me to confirm what you already decided, okay? That's what James is talking about. Don't come to God just for a confirmation of what you already decided to say, well, I'm going to hear what he has to say, but then I might do whatever I darn well please. That man shouldn't expect that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he goes on and says he's double-souled. Literally, he's double-minded, he's double-souled. He's split. He's not all in. He's not sure which direction he's going to go. And so what's going to, what's going to happen in his life? He's going to be unstable tossed here and there by all kinds of winds of life, not walking steadily, but stumbling through life, always confused. It's a great illustration of this uh, back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember, um, the people were following Baal, and Elijah shows up, and he says, you know what, Uh, let's have it out. And he gathers 400 prophets of Baal. And he says, we're going to have a contest. And you, prophets of Baal, you're going to put uh, one beast on the altar, one, one ox on the altar, and I'm going to do the same over here. And then we're going to pray to our gods, and we're going to ask our gods to come pour fire down from heaven and consume the offering, right? And so we can say, show which god is actually God. And then Elijah turns to the people, right? Before the confrontation has happened, he turns to the people, and it says this. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Why? Because they were hedging their bets. They're like, well, let's wait and see what actually is going to happen here. When he says there, you don't hesitate between two opinions, literally it means don't, don't, don't limp along like as if you're on a crutch, right? You're, you're, or you're straddling the fence. Let me wait and see what God actually says, and then I'll decide if I'm going to follow. James says, sorry. God doesn't reveal his will to the curious. Instead, as Jesus said, you want to know what the great commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Be completely undivided in your loyalty to God. So, James says, 
Mature faith is formed through our trials, our tribulations, our suffering. Second, mature faith is guided by God's wisdom. Third, mature faith is strengthened by humility. James chapter 1, read with me in verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Uh, James now addresses two types of followers of Jesus, and he contrasts them with one another. The first, he talks about the brother of humble circumstances, which in this context, uh, he's literally talking about the brother who's poor, who doesn't have material resources. And apparently a lot of the believers to whom James writes are poor. Not all of them, but a lot of them are poor. Not destitute, but they're living day to day. And he will have a word to say to them. If you look over in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved Brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Jesus came and he proclaimed the gospel to the poor. Why? Because historically the the poor have always been most receptive to the gospel because they don't have other resources to turn to to make their way through life. And so it's natural. It's not that a poor person can't be jealous or envious or greedy or reject God, but there's often a receptivity. And early in the church, and I would say throughout all of church history, you see a receptivity among the poor because they don't have resources to turn to other than God. So when Jesus said, hey, here's how to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. The, the, the poor prayed that. We, we need bread every day. We go to God every day for our bread, and the rich are throwing away spoiled food. They have something else to cling to, but the poor don't have that. Also, James says there's going to be this great reversal. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? There's hope. So let the the brother of humble circumstances, the poor man, glory in his his humbling or his, his, his lowliness. Why? Because he knows that he will be exalted. Because he's clinging to the only thing that actually gives life, and that is Jesus. He's in a good place. But you know what? The same is true for the rich man also. He might think that he has something to cling to other than Jesus, but it's a vapor. It's a breath. It's a wind. Proverbs 18, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. It's like a high wall in his own imagination. (laughs) Well, you know, no matter what happens, Um, I can pay for the best doctors. No matter what happens, I've got plenty in savings. No matter what happens, I've got a lot of ingenuity. I can figure it out. And he says to the rich follower of Jesus, you know, you should glory in your, same word, humiliation or humbling, you should glory in the fact that all you really have is Jesus. That's it. That's the rich person. Again, he's not really condemning Uh, wealth per se, what he's condemning is an attitude that you have something other than Jesus to, and his wisdom to walk you through life. So instead, let him glory in his humiliation, because all that you think you have is just, it's a vapor, it's a wind, it's going to go away. Jeremiah chapter 9, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, Let let, let not a rich man boast of his riches, 
But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Really, you just have one boast. And I'm going to venture guess that for some of you, this, this is going to be a hard truth to really live out. Because you are wealthy. You do have resources. And it's hard not to trust in those things if you have them. And for some of you, uh, you've got uh, incredible, wicked intelligence to sort your way through life. And then some of you are just incredibly strong, physically healthy, or you're beautiful, or you're handsome. Um, in fact, I'm going to argue that's not just for some of you, but that's for all of you. There was actually a, a poll conducted recently of members of churches in the Bryan College Station area, and what we learned from that poll is the most uh, beautiful and most intelligent people who follow Jesus go to Grace Bible Church. <laughs> Sorry, Central. I mean... Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, no, yeah, there's no poll, but if there were a poll, right, I'm just going to say this, this is, a, this is a, a room full of people with a lot of natural endowments, and it's hard not to trust in those things. Instead, to lay them down and say, my only boast is in the Lord. That's James' point. Mature faith is strengthened by humility. Fourth, mature faith is rewarded generously. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Flip over to James chapter 5, verse 11. He repeats this same thought at the end of the book as well. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance, okay, to remain under. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcomes, outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. We count those blessed. What does that sound like to you? That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, blessed, blessed. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are, are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You want to go... I imagine this original audience is like, Jesus, what are you talking about? That's completely counterintuitive. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the, the, the strong and the mighty. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? It's complete reversal. Because Jesus is saying, look, there's more to life than what you experience now. There's more to life than comfort. There's more to life than what you can experience now through the momentary and light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. And I want to lift your eyes from your present sufferings, look through them to what God can produce. And so he says, blessed. James adds to the list, not just those who mourn and are merciful. He says, blessed are those who endure. Read with me again, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres, or same word, endures, under the trial. For once he has been approved, and that word for approved means to, to test something, to refine it by fire so that you can prove its value. Once he has been approved, 
he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Maybe you remember all the way back to the beginning of our study of Revelation in the fall. Talk about the crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the believers in Smyrna were promised, uh, if you endure your sufferings faithfully with Jesus, you will receive the crown of life. This is not uh, the gift of eternal life. That's what we're talking about. He's not talking about the free gift of eternal life. This is the Stephanos crown. It's the victor's wreath. He will receive the reward of walking faithfully through trials. And James talks about those crowns. John talks about those crowns. Paul talks about those crowns. Peter talks about those crowns. Those are the reward of walking faithfully with Jesus through every trial and tribulation. It's the victor's crown. He will receive the crown, which is life itself. Right? You, you understood the point of life. Listen to uh, Peter's words, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, see these themes repeating, you've been distressed by various trials, right? Distressed. The trials are distressing. They're not, they're not happy trials. They're distressing trials, and they're various trials. They come in all types of shapes and forms, and they're on you, and they're distressing. And so he says, you are greatly rejoicing. You're considering it or reckoning it intense joy, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof, the testing and, and validating of the value of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable even when it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what he's talking about there is not praise and glory and honor that we give to Jesus, but praise and glory and honor that Jesus shares with us. You get that? Now, some of you may have gone through life and you never heard from your mom or dad, way to go, I'm proud of you. And there's this hole in your soul and you think, man, if, if I still, I would love it if only my, my mom or my dad would just say, I'm proud of you, right? There's just this longing. Why? Because we all want approval. We want someone to say, I'm proud of you. Way to go. We, we long for that. Now imagine the first time you hear that, it's from Jesus. And Jesus says, nailed it. <laughs> Way to go. I am so proud of you. You figured out that life isn't just about your comfort or your ease or dodging trials and tribulations, but in those inevitable trials that I allowed to come into your life, you just clung to me. You, you begged for my wisdom. You walked faithfully with me. Man, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you. Enter into my joy. Share in my glory and honor and praise. Share in it with me. Well done. Well done. Now, for some of you, uh, you may not even know if you have a relationship with Jesus this morning. I want to make it clear. The way that you have a relationship with Jesus is not by enduring trials. Right? It's not by doing better. It's by coming to Jesus and just saying, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. It, it is an absolutely and utterly completely free gift. You don't earn it. Uh, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Um, my sin has created a separation between me and God, and that's why Jesus came and he died. He came to remove that separation so I got to have a relationship with God uh, through Jesus. That's the gospel. And maybe this morning what you need to do is just to call out to Jesus and say, I believe. Maybe it's the first time. 
Maybe it's starting to click for you and go, you know what? I need that relationship with Jesus. And you cry out and say, I believe. And when that happens, your sin, your debt for sin, okay, all the ways you've tried to live independently from God, that debt is removed, it's paid for. And you have the hope of life that will last forever. It's called eternal life, everlasting life. Okay. Um, you don't have a promise that your life's going to get easier. And if anybody tells you that, you know, become a Christian and things are going to get easier, that, that is just absolute falsehood. In fact, I can't promise you that they won't get harder. I don't know. Your circumstances could get harder and more difficult. I, I don't know. They won't necessarily get easier. That's not what Jesus promises. What he promises is all of those trials and tribulations that inevitably, inevitably fall on us because uh, it's a broken world, Jesus will walk through those with you. He will guide you. He will strengthen you. He will create a character in you that is rock solid, doesn't fold up shop when you're suffering. And then you will have an eternity in which there are no more trials or tribulation or suffering or sorrow or pain or tears. That's the promise. So I'd encourage you if you've never made that decision for the first time, maybe this morning, it's your moment, it's your opportunity just to say yes to Jesus. Now, on the other hand, some of you uh, may have been walking with Jesus for a long time. What I really want to challenge you to do this week is just uh, to spend some time deeply thinking before the Lord and allowing God's Spirit to examine your heart. What's your highest goal in life? Really, what's your high, if you're really genuinely honest with yourself, what's your highest goal? Is it, is it wealth? Or is it uh, health and strength? Or is it uh, the praise of other people? Or accomplishments? Or possessions? What's the thing that you're chasing after the most? Uh, if that thing were gone, it causes you the most heartache. That's often what you know. Uh, I want you just to think and let the Spirit examine. What are you chasing after the most? Or uh, is it um, holiness? Is it completeness? Is your highest goal in life to be uh, mature and to be like Jesus. If your highest goal is anything other than that, you know what? Circumstances are just going to get in your way and frustrate you. On the other hand, if your highest goal is to be like Jesus, then every circumstance, the blessings and the struggles can move you toward Jesus. Nothing, nothing can stand in the way of that goal if it's the highest calling and goal of your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we begin a new semester, we would once again renew our desire to pursue Jesus and his will in our lives above all else. That what we would long for more than anything else is to be like Jesus. Father, I pray for each person right now who's walking through uh, the dark valley of a trial, I pray, Father, they would sense your presence and your strength. Pray, Father, that they would turn to you and confidence and cling to you. Pray, Father, for each of us that we would cry out for your wisdom with an undivided heart, that we will walk in your way no matter what you call us to do. Father, may our lives as a result, as people watch us go through the, the common struggles of life, that they would see our lives and they say, you know, that's a woman who walks with God. That's a man who walks with God. That's a man or woman who has something different than what I have. And they would be drawn to your son, Jesus through us and through our sufferings. Father, don't waste our sufferings, but use them for your honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.